On uh, Monday morning, I was uh, looking via the internet, as I often do, um, just scanning the various newspapers and what was in the newspapers, just getting a feel for, for what was going on. And I, I came across uh, an article that was titled, Five Nostradamus Predictions That Came True and Ones That Could Still Come. The article said, and I quote, while some of them aren't completely definitive, some appear to be incredibly accurate for someone who died hundreds of years ago. And it said, you know, he predicted things like the Great Fire of London, um, Adolf Hitler, um, the assassination of, of John Kennedy. <clears throat> and I looked at the quotes and I thought, incredibly accurate. You're kidding. For Hitler it was, and I quote, from the depths of the west of Europe, wrote Nostradamus, a young child will be born of poor people. He goes on to say that the child will, by his tongue, seduce a great troop, and his fame will spread far beyond Europe. Could be Hitler, could be lots of other people as well. It's pretty vague, isn't it? And that's what people tend to do. They get something vague like that and they read back into it. I was blowing a big raspberry. Inside. But people don't have to be Nostradamus scholars to do that kind of nonsense. Lots of people do that every day with their horoscopes. You know, something vague and elusive is mentioned and you, you look back and think, oh, that's right. And you make something fit. And what's the point anyway of saying Nostradamus predicted that? Not that he did. I mean, it hasn't, it's not anything that we can do anything. I mean, he didn't um, predict the assassination of John Kennedy in such a way that we could have prevented it. He didn't, he didn't predict it in such a way that said, don't go to Dallas that particular day, or here's the, the knoll where Lee Harvey Oswald or whoever else it was that shot Kennedy where was hiding. You know, he didn't in any way say anything helpful. It's more serious and more worrying when people do that kind of thing with Scripture. And sometimes people do. They read back into Scripture the fulfillment of something that was simply not there in the first place. Or seeing something of little consequence mentioned, and it produces a wow rather than what do we do about this? And the book of Revelation is a great hunting ground for those that want to do that kind of nonsense. It usually starts with the mistaken notion that the book of Revelation is all about God unveiling what is going to happen at the end of the world. It isn't. What the book is about is what's, as it were, going on behind the scenes, the battle between good and evil that is raging throughout human history. And because it's raging throughout human history, then it does, in fact, come to an end. Because where these folk are right is that the world will end. Christ will come again. There'll be a new creation. And so as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, that's where the story is going. Chapters 19 to 21 have seven different visions, each beginning with, uh, I saw, or, and I saw, or then I saw. 
And these, and this has been the case throughout the this book of Revelation, they are not seven uh, things that come in sequence. They rather are seven different ways or seven different angles of looking at the same thing. And in chapters 19 to 21, in these seven visions, John is seeing how good and how ideal will be this final kingdom of God. It includes the claim that justice will conquer, that the word of God will prevail, that deception will die, that Jesus' followers will be vindicated, that the heavens and earth will be remade, that death will be no more, and that God will finally, totally, and unmistakably be present with his people. And the final two chapters and the first few verses of each, what Helen read this morning, in these final two chapters, we, that continues that multifaceted vision of the new creation where both heaven and earth are renewed. And two things for me stand out that I want to underline. The first of them, particularly in the verses from uh, chapter 21 that we read, there, the verses there speak of an intimate presence of God with his people. This is the outcome of the salvation. Verse 3 of that chapter. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. The gospel, you see, is good news, not simply of forgiveness, but of fellowship with God. Jesus taught that, didn't he? Just one example. Anyone who loves me, he says in John's gospel, will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to them and make our home with them. Make our home with them. Not passing through. Make our home with them. Not just be in nodding terms as you might be with someone who lives at the other end of the street. Oh yeah, I know that guy. He's just kind of, yeah, that's a big fella. There, that's a... Make our home. That close. And the Apostle John in his first letter says, this is what we're holding out in the gospel. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul contrasted the reality of what we have now with the fullness of what is to come. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now that's what's highlighted in, in Revelation 21. That, that closeness, that intimacy, that full face to face, being at home with one another... God and humanity. The word dwell in verse 3 refers back to the presence of God dwelling in the people of Israel as they travel through the wilderness with the tabernacle. Then in the temple that Solomon built where God said he would be specially present for them. It refers back to Jesus coming to earth. For as John says in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word literally means tabernacled. He moved in. He came to stay with us. Now what God did in Jesus 
coming to an unknowing and unwelcoming people. What God did in Jesus, he will do, says Revelation 21, on a cosmic scale. He is coming to live forever in our midst. A healing, comforting, celebrating presence. Now, Jesus did that by uniting God and humanity in his person. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, but also son of God. He brought earth and heaven together in his, his being. Revelation 21 says, God's going to do that for the whole cosmos. Earth and heaven will be united and we will see him face to face. We will know fully. What we've got now is simply a mere taste. And that intimacy, that closeness of fellowship between God and his people is further emphasized in chapter 21 by the imagery of marriage. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Heaven and earth, you see, are not poles apart. They're not incompatible. They're not so completely different that there will not be any connection. It is not the case that at the end of time, earth is disposed of and the redeemed are transported to something totally different. Rather, heaven and earth are made for each other. And just as the wedding of a man and a woman is a coming together of different and complementary people and is a celebration of that union, so there is something to celebrate here in this ultimate union. Heaven and earth made for each other. Tears are wiped away. Verse 4, everything is made new. And then lastly, note just from that, these few verses in Revelation 21. Note that heaven and earth are brought together by heaven descending to earth. Verse 2 again. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And so the nonsense that we die and our souls are taken away forever to be somewhere ethereal, it's, it's exactly that nonsense. The union of heaven and earth is what the gospel promises, but the union of heaven and earth is when heaven comes to earth. This is the final fulfillment of the prayer that we prayed this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as well as heaven. Here it is fulfilled. God's purpose is put into effect. Paul describes it in the first chapter of, of Ephesians, and when he gets to verse 10, he says, into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Got that? Heaven and earth coming together in unity. Just like a marriage, Revelation 21 says. Coming together in unity under Christ. And no more death, no more tears, no more mourning, no more wasting. No more imperfections in our knowledge, but we are seen and known perfectly, and we see and know perfectly. The presence of God, that's the future that's promised there. 
But the people of God, Revelation 22 now, with the verses that Helen read, the people of God are not just sitting on clouds playing harps. It's a great relief to me. I'm not a great fan of the harp, but... Uh, they are God's servants, the agents of God's love going out in new ways to accomplish creative tasks, to celebrate and extend the glory of His love. The passage talks about His being servants in verse 3 of chapter 22. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. But it also says, verse 5, we will reign forever and ever. And so just as in the passage last week we were looking at from Revelation 5, there was this um, strange combination, as it were, of the lion and the lamb coming together and the rule and the power of God being exercised not through dominant force and strength, but through sacrifice and love through the way of the lamb. Just as these two ideas are brought together for our Savior, they're, they're brought together here in Revelation 22. We are servants and yet we are reigning with Christ. It's not a reign of force or domination, but the expression of love. And so God's people are taken up into something far greater than any of us can imagine. And so the ultimate questions are not around whether we can get back to something resembling this life, seeing my family again, and so on. The destiny of individual humans must be put within this context of God's whole recreation of the entire cosmos. And it's not just that each of us is a small part of that, we are, but that our salvation is in order that we play a vital role in God's bigger purpose. So the question is not so much what's going to happen to me or my gran or my auntie or whatever. The question is more about how God's new creation and the work that God has in store for his new world will come to pass. It was a similar mistake to the one that we often make when we just picture heaven as a getting together with our mates again. I mean, that's all very well, but come on, there's lots of unpleasant people as well, and they're going to be, presumably, that some of them might be around... It's not so perfect in those terms. But you see, what, what the, the mistake that um, the Jews made in Jesus' time was that they thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to restore Israel to being top dog. Um, so on the, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had died and was risen, two of his followers sort of still trying to come to terms with what had happened, and they, Jesus comes alongside, they don't recognize him, and they explain how disappointed they are that their great leader, the Messiah, had been crucified. And they say, and we had hoped that he was the one who was going to set Israel free. That was their hope. Messiah, freedom for Israel. And then, just before the ascension of Jesus, and we have this in, in Acts chapter 1, just before the ascension of Jesus, the disciples come to him and say, right, now, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See what they're thinking? The work of the Messiah is get Israel back. But Jesus had something far bigger in, in store. Jesus was going to be saviour for the world. 
Jesus was going to say, Jesus was effectively saying to these guys, no, this is not something that restores Israel, but through Israel, through the people, through the Jews, through you guys here, we're now going to extend the salvation and love and reach of God into all the world. And you guys might not be able to see it yet, Jesus could have said to them, but you know, I'll tell you in 2,000 years from now, there's going to be millions and millions and millions of believers in the world. 2,000 years from now, that my followers are going to be growing at a rate of around about 50,000 people a day. Because that's what's happening across the world. And these disciples just wouldn't have got that. They couldn't see anything bigger than Israel getting back to the top of the tree. God had much more God had much greater in store. And in a similar way, I think we kind of constrict and contract the work of God when we think it's just about us getting back together with a few chosen friends and family members somehow in eternity. There is something far greater. There is something far bigger that God's got in store. And we cannot understand it. We cannot imagine it just the way that these first disciples would not have understood or been able to imagine anything so much better than simply Israel being on top for a while again. God has more in store. God's salvation is bigger than that. Now, that promise of God, that picture in these two chapters of Revelation of the presence of God face to face and our being servants who are reigning and and, and fullness of of a wider, wider purpose, that's miles away from the drivel of Nostradamus's predictions. His are very vague and elusive, but we cannot act upon them. Whereas what is outlined here in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth, is both something that we can trust in because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also it is a call to action, as Miriam was reminding us earlier on. And so these these chapters come to us with an urgent question to us about which side we are on and what we're going to do about which side we're on. The choice is whether or not we will worship the Creator God and discover what it means to be fully and gloriously human, reflecting His powerful healing transformation and, and great love into the world. Or are we just going to worship the world as it is? boosting our corruptible humanness by gaining power or pleasure from forces within the world, but in so doing, adding to our own dehumanization and further corruption of the world itself. John presents in these chapters of Revelation an alternative city, a city of God that is descending down, a city that's in contrast to um, he uses the imagery of Babylon from the, from the Old Testament reference, and clearly <clears throat> he's also got in mind the Rome and the empire that was oppressing the people of his time. He's saying, choose Babylon, Rome, or Jerusalem. Force, materialism, or the lion, lamb of God. Choose. 
Not choose as in, which of these do you prefer, but which of them are you following? It's not a casual kind of choosing that he's asking us to here. It's not a choosing like, would you like a strawberry tart? Or would you like a piece of millionaire shortbread? Jerusalem, the way of God, the life and love sacrificing of God, or the way of Babylon, Rome, Beijing, New York, London, whatever it might be. That's the choice. That's the choice that's being held out. And I'm saying it was, it's a serious choice. It's not a flippant thing like, do you want the strawberry tart or millionaire shortbread? You know, which would you prefer? And then once you've had whatever you're having, then life goes on just as it did before. This is a choice that says it's an all-of-life choice. One of two totally different ways of life, different goals, different methods, different values. Besides, while it might not actually be good for you, you could, I suppose, have a strawberry tart and a piece of millionaire shortbread. But you can't have Babylon, Rome, Jerusalem, uh, or Mecca, whatever, and Jerusalem. You can't have the powers and riches and ways of the world and the way and style of Christ. You can't have rampant consumerist goals, materialism, and a Jesus who says, take up your cross daily and follow. So we choose, we must. For the followers of Jesus, Revelation 21 and 22 says, this is what is ultimately ahead. The present of God, the servanthood reigning of God through his people. But it is not all in the future. For Jesus, when he came, said the kingdom of God was here among us. The ways of God's kingdom are to be lived now. The joy of fellowship with God can be known now. Paul didn't say in Corinthians, we haven't a clue, but then we shall see fully. No, he said, we see, but as in a mirror, we have something now. And if we live in the here and now and live by the ways of the kingdom of God, then what we do for the Lord will not be in vain. We are not oiling the wheels of a machine that is about to fall off a cliff. We are not oiling, we are not restoring a great painting that's just about to be burned. We are not doing some um, planting flowers in a garden that's about to be taken away as a new road coming through. We are doing something that will last and will last forever. The coming together of earth and heaven pictured in Revelation 21 and 22 has a prototype, the resurrection of Jesus. It's not based on fairy tales. Christ is risen. And it is the risen Christ who commissioned his followers, who promised to be with them, who told them that they would bear fruit, fruit that would remain. So everything done now in Jesus' name Every spirit-led work, every act of dedication to Jesus, every service offered to him will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation. So yes, we live in a world where there are dark times and dark things. We live 
where there's pandemics and maybe a new one coming around the corner. We live in war-torn world. We live where there is economic difficulties. But two things in these chapters. Ultimately, Revelation 21 and 22 say this is what is ahead for us. It's more and it's better. And secondly, we are to choose now. And if we are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus' way, if we live his way now, nothing that we do for him will be wasted. Let us pray.